All right, well, with that, let's stand up together and let's read Acts chapter 9. Um, and we're going to be beginning at, chapter, at verse 19, uh, the second part of it. Okay, And this is, uh, last week, if you remember, we looked at the conversion and the commissioning of Saul. And today, uh, we're going to be looking at just the, the ministry that Saul begins um, after all of that. So let's read Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his, this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Lord, we ask now that you would give us a fresh word as we walk through this text together. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness in, in, in revealing us, Lord, all, all these stories and connections and events that took place as you birthed your church. And Lord, as your son uh, from heaven uh, extended his ministry through the, the, the faithful witness of the disciples and the apostles and others. Lord, we have been privileged to walk through so far, but Lord, help us today. Um, to be teachable. So, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, Lord, would you make us? And would you allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful to proclaim your truth to your people for your glory? We ask these things in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Ever since I entered ministry oh, around 1988 or so, I know, don't add all the numbers up and look at me and say, this is how old you are. But ever since I was in ministry, one of the things that happened over and over and over again was I would get junk mail, junk email from all sorts of individuals and organizations that wanted me to attend their seminar or read their book or attend their lecture, or join their movement, because they all claim to have the secret of effectively growing your youth group, your church, even your pastoral career, and ultimately multiplying the power of your ministry and the numbers and attendance wherever you are going to be doing ministry. Each of them had their own unique key, promising that your church will be the spiritual epicenter of your community and will result in a tsunami of people attending church if you just follow this key. Many years back, I was invited to help as a consultant for a church that was ready to close its doors. And it was a, a large church that was coming to help out the smaller church, a large church from around the Bay Area, and um, they came, and they were all very, very excited, and, and they were wanting to expand in this particular area. And, and I met with the, the represent, representatives of the church that was meeting with the larger church and talked to them a little bit about what they were wanting to do, and they were getting ready to close the doors and wanting the church to continue. And 
So then I met also with them, and they asked me to kind of, you know, listen and hear and give advice and that kind of stuff. And so I sat down and I listened to the presentation of uh, what was going on from this larger church. And it happened to be the worship leader of that church um, that was speaking first. And, and he was the, the typical kind of worship leader, very, very trendy, bleached hair, um, trying to think what else was going on there. But just, you know, everything to try and be cool and hip and trendy and very positive and that kind of stuff, right? And But a nice guy. Um, and, and they went through this document, and this document really was what they called their DNA. It was really an acrostic of the name of their church, but it listed the things that they felt that this is, these are the essential ingredients. This is what is important. And if we just transfer our DNA to this new location, we guarantee that the church is just going to rise up and thrive. Well, they outlined their church DNA. Here's some of the things they said. Biblically based, an atmosphere of acceptance, youth ministry, small groups, Inspiring worship, discipleship, equipping leaders. And as I listened to what they were presenting, I could not help but think there's something or some things that are missing here. There's something that's just not there that should be there. None of the things that they mentioned were necessarily bad. In fact, we would agree with all of them here at Gateway. This is part of the things that we're we're about. But it's what wasn't said that concerned me. It unsettled me. And as I went through each piece of their DNA, I asked probing questions. I wasn't rude or obnoxious about it. I was just trying to discover with the group that was meeting with them, hey, what are you guys about? And it came down really to two things that I saw that I was concerned about that were being deliberately avoided, in my opinion. Two things that really are Christianity 101. And as such, we 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 had this list, and 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 was uh, it really was nothing more than a watered down list of essential marks for a healthy organization, not necessarily a list of essential marks for a healthy church. For example, biblically based. Our country is biblically based. Our work week is biblically based. Catholics. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims are biblically based. What do you mean by biblically based? An atmosphere of acceptance. Well, go to any support group somewhere around. That's one of the key things, right? doesn't distinguish you necessarily as this is what a church is. Inspiring worship. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by inspiring? The trendy band and worship leader? The loudness of the music? The lights and the smoke or the the dimming of the lights? The repetition of rain and waves and ocean and sand and mountains and valleys in their song lyrics? We have a little bit of that too. The emotional charge you experience because you're singing with other people? Uh, Friends, some of you know I'm an English soccer fan. I support West Ham United. One of my bucket lists was to go to England, went with my wife and took her to Upton Park and 35,000 people all sang together. And in, in, in soccer, there's no like organ or band kind of driving the songs. The songs just flow according to the game and what happens. And we all, 35,000 of us start singing, I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. And it was powerful. I mean, 35,000 people singing the same song, men and women but it was a song that has no substance whatsoever. It can be inspiring, but empty. Now, please hear this. These were nice people we were meeting with. They were genuinely sincere, but they were missing two essentials. And when I brought them up gently as questions, they got rather flustered and really unable to respond well And their body language and their comments communicated to me that they felt I was pouring cold water on their presentation. And they said, well, of course we believe those things. Those are just assumed. Now, friends, they may have been assumed, but clearly they were not essential. Or they would have been front and central in their ministry DNA. And what was clear to me is that the two things 
that the scriptures identify as essential had been pushed aside, well, pushed to the sidelines, but at best watered down. So what were those things? You might ask, right? You're probably wondering, what are those things? Um, First of all, the the essential role of expositional preaching. That preaching was at the heart of what they were doing. There was no mention of preaching. There was kind of a, a diminished, oh yeah, we have someone that gets up on Sunday and he'll, he'll give a talk and he'll communicate. It's, it's, it's like it's part of the package, but it's really the thing that we tolerate. I mean, that's really the attitude that was going on there. Right? It's light. It's inspirational. And really, it's not really how we're going to reach people. Because people come to church not to hear a sermon. They come to experience God. Right? And the second one was the centrality of the gospel. I mean, in the whole presentation, they didn't mention the gospel once. And the emphasis on a solid or clear theology, theology being a bad word in their mind, that expresses the proclaims who Jesus is and what he has done was watered down. It was watered down to the point, well, we just want to celebrate Jesus. We want people to know that Jesus Loves them. Which Jesus? What's he like? Right? I mean, these are things that are important, right? And friends, in today's Christian culture, there are a variety of ways to guarantee a church's growth, unfortunately. A dynamic and engaging communicator who's a gifted storyteller, right? He's approachable, he's humorous. Just laugh for me so I can fit in here, okay? A sensational, exceptional praise band. Right? Young, attractive, trendy, gifted. Wow. They're going to draw the people in. An incredible church campus with good parking. It's really important, right? Dynamic youth programs. And that can mean a lot of different things. Fun, exciting children's programs. Well, yeah. I mean, I want kids that are coming to youth programs to say, hey, you know what? This has been great. I've been, I've learned. I've had fun. I mean, that's all part of it. Kids come to church. I want them to enjoy being a part of a class and learning. A casual, welcoming, and accepting atmosphere. And the emphasis is really where the church does all it can so as to not feel like a church. (laughs) And friends, these are are just some of the ingredients that are put out there. And you're like, man, Pastor Rod, where are you going with this? If you notice the title of the sermon here, Church Growth. You're going to see how this all kind of unpacks in our text. Now, friends, is what I've just shared with you essential according to God's word? Is what is essential, is is that what we find in the book of Acts, revealing to us that these are the essentials of what it means to be a church? And I want you to notice how this section ends. We're going to kind of begin with the end in mind here. It's, It's the second of... Uh, 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 some summary statements in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we have the first one. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Getting to the heart of some things there. And now in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, which brings a close now to this section, this movement of gospel witness out of Jerusalem now into Judea, Samaria, This is what we read. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I just think about those five descriptions, right? The church experienced peace. It's a good thing, right? The church was being built up. There was a lot of edification. There was a lot of growth happening there. People were walking in the fear of the Lord. That's a good thing. They're walking mindful of his presence and his activity in their lives. They they, they rested in the comfort of the Holy Spirit who was now residing in them, giving them clarity and understanding and moving through what they were doing for God's glory. And as a result, it was multiplying. Friends, now that's a description of a healthy church. That's a description I want to have left on Gateway Bible Church. But it didn't just happen. I want to suggest to you that some things had to take place that brought about such a faithful and flourishing church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. 
So the question for us today is, what has been happening in Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, to bring about this healthy, peaceful, built-up, multiplying church? What is driving the growth and the spread of the church across the region? And then add to that, what drives the one who has been called to ministry or to the ministry of proclamation? And then finally, by application, what should drive each follower of Christ, each person who names the name of Christ as their own? See, our text falls into three sections. Section 1, verses 19 to 25, Saul in Damascus. Right? Section 2, which would be Saul in Jerusalem. These are not your headings for your notes, if you want. Okay? And then the third section would be the summary statement. But I would like to approach this section of Scripture thematically because what we have here are themes that are present in our text but have been running through the book of Acts up to this point. And I would suggest to you that these themes are feeding into what are essential for church growth. So what has taken place so that the church is multiplying? The proposition here for church growth Essentials. I'll give them to you so you can put them in the blanks. Make sure you get them. And the reality is the first one is where we're going to spend most of our time because it really is the priority. It's preaching, preparation, persecution, and people. Preaching, preparation, persecution, and people. Now you'll see how this fits together as we walk through it. Now, don't panic if we're like 20 minutes left and I'm still on the first point, all right? I see it in your eyes every Sunday. You're like, ah, I'm not going to be able to get to the restaurant or something like that, right? Don't worry about it. Here we go, all right, preaching. What I'd like to do is not only focus in our text, but I would like to kind of draw from Acts 1 through 9 as we go through each of these different section headings, all right? And we want to begin here by noticing the preaching of the church, and I'm talking there about the beginning, the beginning of Acts, all the way through where we are presently in this text. And I want to highlight some things. They're going to be up on the screen, but I'm going to highlight them. So if you want to take pictures or whatever, you can do that. In Acts 2, we have the disciples preaching. That's all 120 out there proclaiming the word of God, speaking in known tongues of all the different people that had come to Pentecost from different places around the Mediterranean, the Greek-speaking world, they're all there, and there's a preaching that is taking place by the disciples, right? Then you have Paul standing up and preaching, explaining this phenomenon, what has been going on. That's also in chapter 2. And 3,000 souls are added to the church, we're told. In Acts chapter 3, Peter continues to preach at Solomon's portico, having healed the lame beggar, and many believe the message and the church grew to 5,000. In Acts chapter 5, when the angel of the Lord releases the apostles from, from public prison, the angel says, go, speak to the people all the words of this life. And they do. In, in chapter 6, the first deacons are chosen, and what we're told is that the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Right? And, and chapter 6 uh, and through chapter 7, we find Stephen preaching Christ from the scriptures before the Jewish council who would put him to death because Stephen rightly explained, exposed, and, and also applied the scriptures to them. And they didn't like it. In chapter 8 and verse 4, we're told that those who were scattered because of the persecution went about preaching the word. In chapter 8, verse 5, we find Philip um, uh, preaching Christ in the city of Samaria, and many believe, and there is much joy in the city. In Acts chapter 8, verse 25, we see the apostles then returning from Samaria, having, uh, having brought in the Holy Spirit to the Samaritan people. It says they returned, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. In chapter 8, verse 40, Philip, after he has explained the scripture to the Ethiopian, now... We're told that he is found in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Friends, I'm just trying to show you that throughout all that we've seen, that preaching has been central. Preaching, 
preaching, preaching, preaching what? Preaching the word, preaching the gospel, preaching the word, preaching the gospel. And I want us to, to, to realize the importance of this. The power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed through the faithful preaching of God's word. And I know that many times people come to the book of Acts and they see the book of Acts as the, the unfolding of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus Christ is in heaven and he is the author of what is happening here. And he has told these apostles to go out and to be his witnesses. It's the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ and the preaching of his gospel, whereby the Holy Spirit is coming in and bringing life through that preaching. So friends, the Holy Spirit's power is unleashed through the faithful preaching of God's word. Do we see that to be true? So is it any wonder that when God's chosen instrument now comes to carry Christ's name to the Gentiles, when he's converted, the first thing he does is begin to preach and proclaim Jesus. Now we're in our text, the preaching of Saul. We find him coming and he's proclaiming Jesus. He preaches in Damascus. It says there in verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he's the son of God. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And then we jump down a little bit. He preaches in Jerusalem, verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. What are some things we can learn here? First of all, I think we can learn the place of Saul's preaching. He went into the synagogues. Why? Well, that's where the Jews were, and that's also where the Christians were gathering. There was still the sense in which the Christians were gathering in the synagogue. Why? Because Christianity is an outgrowth of Judaism. He would go in there and he would preach. People would listen. People would hear. People would get angry. Right? But he went to the synagogues, and you'll see that over and over and over again as the book of Acts unfolds. It was a strategy that he had. Secondly, the manner of Saul's preaching. Uh, two things, gospel boldness. I mean, don't you see in there? Boldness in the name of Jesus, Barnabas says. Boldness in the name of the Lord, Luke says, as he talks about what Saul is doing in Jerusalem which means he had no fear when he was preaching. He was not afraid of those to whom he was preaching. He did not hold back with the truth of the scriptures. Then we also have gospel reasoning. We're told that he confounded them. He confounded literally by proving. His proofs were confounding and confusing his listeners. And he was showing them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were confused. They could not answer him. And friends, it's something really important for us to realize here. That this is what happens when you're locked into a religious system and stop thinking as you are reading. Here at Gateway, we want you to think biblically. We want you to be like the Bereans we found in Acts chapter 17, who after Paul and Silas preached, examine the scriptures daily to see if what has been preached was what the scriptures actually say. We don't just want you to swallow a bunch of talking points and go off your merry way and hold on to the talking points. We want you to be thinking, biblically thinking people. And that's why we have times like home group where we can talk through things, right? We don't just want to just be kind of some a religious system where you're just saying whatever the pastor said. Well, my pastor says it must be right. Well, I want you to think. That's our goal. And then it says speaking and disputing has the idea of debating and explaining and arguing for the truth of the gospel from the scripture. Now, friends, in in Jerusalem, these are the same Hellenistic Jews that were not able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke three years earlier. And yet Paul now is speaking and disputing with them. Now, what we need to see is that the preaching of the gospel by the apostles, by the disciples, and of Paul was not just dribbling out of talking points, but careful thinking, arguing, reasoning from the scriptures. It's not a he who shouts louder wins the argument kind of methodology. It's a genuine saying, here's the scripture. 
And let me show you how the scripture points to this and points to this and shows us that Christ actually was to come and to suffer. But there's a blindness. And so the preaching exposed who Christ was from the Old Testament scriptures. It's wonderful. But it required reasoning and thinking, careful reasoning and thinking. So our culture caricatures Christians as being ignorant. And quite frankly, many times they're correct. Let's just be honest about it. But that should not be who we are. We should be growing in our maturity, in our knowledge, in our wisdom, in our ability to handle the word of God. We must be a thinking, debating, reasoning people, able to articulate what the scriptures teach, not just spouting off Christian talking points. Well, the place of Saul's preaching, the manner of Saul's preaching, now the content of Saul's preaching. Notice what we we find there in particular uh, in Damascus. He preached that Jesus is the Son of God, and he also preached that Jesus is the Christ. Now, just a little clarification here. There's a teaching promoted by liberal theologians that says that because we're all made in the image of God, we're all sons and daughters of God. Therefore, in their thinking, Jesus was only a son of God in that sense. But no, the title son of God identifies Jesus as the heavenly eternal son who is equal to God himself, is the unique son from the father, fully reveals the father, has full authority from the father, and has been sent by the father to reconcile the world to himself through his sacrifice on the cross. And Saul went around preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Also that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the hope of Israel, the one who would come to deliver Israel from oppression. Not the oppression of man, but the oppression of sin. Now friends, I I went through a season after I resigned from a previous ministry where um, preaching was really downplayed and, and put down and And so I began to question certain things. And there was a book that God used in my life that was so very, very helpful. Um, And it was called The Priority of Preaching by Christopher Ashe. Wonderful little book. And I want to read for you three little vignettes from that book that really hone in on the importance and the priority of preaching, not just for me, but for us as a church. First of all, only the preached word of Christ The word of grace preached again and again and again, pressed home with passion and engagement. Only that word will create God's assembly to rebuild a broken world. We need the preached word. Secondly, by and large, we who are preachers do not reach the world with the word. Mostly the world will not listen to the word. Christ shapes his church with the word, and the church reaches the world. If a preacher is to act on the world, he must, as a rule, do it through his church. He is to preach to the church from the word so that with the church he may preach the gospel to the world. Now, I know that's kind of wordy, but I hope you get the point. God's revelation The man of God stands before the congregation, preaches the word. It's the congregation that takes the word out to the highways and byways. It's not all on the shoulders of the pastor to go out and be the church evangelist. His job is to preach the word to the congregation who will then interact with people, right? This is is the mechanism that God's put in place. Lastly here, I suggest that we all fight to give God the glory in honoring our time-gathered as an assembly under the delegated authority of the preacher who is exercising the gift and satisfying food of the word of God with passion, urgency, and clarity so that all God's children can believe and obey in such a way as to spread the glory of the gospel. Do we value the preach word? Friends, this is the heart, this is the priority essential of what is happening in the book of Acts. Yes, there were other things that took place. There were miracles, there were signs, there were wonders that were taking place, but all of them took take a backseat to the preaching of the word. The word of God continued to 
increase. <laughs> That's what it says. It doesn't say miracles and signs continue to, you know, to overflow. Now, you might be saying, well, Pastor Rod, it's just because you're passionate about this. that That's why we're doing this. I hope that just me walking you through the book of Acts here has given you cause to realize that I'm only telling you what is there. Okay? So, preaching. Secondly, preparation. Preparation. And we're going to look at Saul's preparation, then we'll look at the church's preparation. Here we want to begin with Saul. I want to step back a little bit here and say that sometimes Luke, in, in what he's sharing in the book of Acts, might appear to be a short period of time, but what we actually have in our text is probably a period of between three to four years. So we need to kind of come to this text with that in mind, because what Luke is giving here is specific accounts, but also summary highlights that sometimes run together. In our present Passage, Luke tells us what happened in those two locations, Damascus and then Jerusalem. But according to Saul's own words in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, he also spent three years in Arabia. And I want to draw your attention then to that passage, Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Here's what Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, talking about God, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went, I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Now, most scholars agree that the best time to place Saul's words here, his going into Arabia for three years, takes place between verses 22 and 23 of our text. Because it says there in the opening phrase, when many days had passed, right? It's kind of, you know, it's kind of like saying, and a little while later, and that could be two weeks, that could be 10 years, right? There's a broadness to what's being said here. So it would look like this. Saul begins preaching in Damascus, he then goes away into Arabia, he comes back to Damascus, and then he goes up to Jerusalem, right? Now, the Arabia part isn't in our text in the sense it's not declared there, but it's, this is where it would fit based on the chronology that Paul is giving us. So now the question is this, why would Saul be taken to Arabia for three years? Here are some thoughts. To spend time alone with Christ. A second reason would be to to have his two questions answered. The two questions that he asked while he was face-to-face with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Who are you, Lord, and what shall I do, Lord? It's one thing to be told, I am the Messiah. It's another thing to understand how all that works together. Right? I would say third, to learn about himself. If you're learning about Christ, things are going to be true about yourself. When you stand and you gaze into the glory of God, you realize how sinful and unholy you are, right? And certainly Saul had lots to learn about himself. Fourth, to grow in his understanding of the gospel. And then fifth, to learn and anticipate the suffering he would have to endure, because that was all part of his commission. He would be an apostle to the Gentiles, but he would suffer, right? Now, we're not told that specifically in Scripture. We're kind of putting that in there, saying these are things that likely would have happened while he was there, spending that time in preparation. Now, all this makes sense, though, when you think about who Saul is. He was a Pharisee, and he had credentials, right? A Pharisee that sat under Gamaliel. I mean, when he walked into a synagogue, he had clout. Oh, oh, you're a Pharisee. Under, uh, uh, please stand up, speak, read, teach. He was a gifted orator, a naturally gifted speaker. He he was naturally tenacious. And with that natural giftness, you can do ministry for a while, friends, in your own power and strength, but you'll run out of gas. And some people who are incredibly gifted, they'll do ministry for a while, but eventually they're exposed as being a fraud because they're not doing it for the Lord. They're not doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're doing it in their own strength and power, their own giftedness. Now, 
Truly Saul was a naturally gifted man with a bachelor's and a master's and a doctorate in theology, would say, but he was not yet qualified for full service. Yes, he had been preaching in the synagogues. Yes, Saul was gaining strength. That means wisdom and understanding the more he preached, but he was still a novice. He was still a new convert. And so although naturally gifted, he needs three years of refinement at the hands of Christ to prepare for his ministry to the Gentiles. I mean, isn't it interesting that here, you know, Saul is, is radically converted on the road to Damascus, but we really don't see him actively engaging the Gentiles probably for another, what, 11, 12 years. Now, we don't necessarily see that unless we start putting things together. I'll show that to you in just, in just a little bit. See, Paul would go on to write in his pastoral epistle to Timothy about the qualifications for being an elder and overseer. Here's what he would say. This is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Natural giftedness can get in the way of gospel ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Talk about for ministry. In other words, preparation is necessary before mission. Preparation is necessary before mission. This is true of Saul, and it's true of the church in general, let me show you that a little bit from what we have in the book of, of Acts. We'll dip back just briefly into the Gospels here, but this is the church's preparation. How long did the disciples have to be prepared? Certainly around three years, right? Then in Acts chapter 1, in verse 4, Jesus prepared the disciples slash apostles for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 1, verse 22, the disciples choose Matthias to replace Judas. But as you read through that passage, there were some credentials that needed to be there and that the candidates had to have been there for a certain amount of time, had to have been there uh, since the baptism of John and Christ's ascension, and had to have seen the resurrected Jesus. In other words, there was a time where these people, although they were not officially disciples, were still being prepared because they were under the ministry of Jesus. In Acts chapter 6, it's interesting that the deacons are chosen having demonstrated over time that they were men of good reputation, men full of the spirit and wisdom. I think sometimes we read through, through Acts and we're like, oh, okay, you know, there's this problem coming up. They need deacons. Bang, let's get some deacons here. Men of good report, blah, blah, blah. Wait a second. There's time going on here so that their lives are on display, so that people could evaluate them to be able to make a decision to say these men are qualified. There was a preparation in life, a preparation in character. That was necessary before service could take place. And here in Acts chapter 9, we see that even Saul needed time to prepare for the mission Christ had called him to. And friends, this is why we take time when it comes to putting people in positions of leadership. Not just eldership, but just but leadership in the church. A warm body who loves Jesus qualifies you for many things as a follower of Christ. But leadership in the church needs to take time. Character and competency need to be put on display. Now, friends, what are you doing to become more prepared for gospel ministry? And I just want to ask the question, is it possible that we have been somewhat affected by our secular culture that we embrace an entitlement attitude that says, you know what, I don't need preparation. I just want the position. But that's not how it works necessarily here in the context of the church. We don't bypass preparation. We do what God wants us to do to make sure that there's right examination, there's right character demonstration so that the church can be healthy. Friends, if there's one institution in this world that we don't want to mess around with, it's the church. And so we're going to be careful because preparation is necessary. And friends, don't prepare to please men. 
do prepare to be ready to serve the Lord. And by preparation for you, I mean just your own personal growth in Christlikeness. So, preaching, preparation. Number three, persecution. I just noticed how many times the church, or what the church went through already in Acts 1 through 9 as it relates to the subject of persecution. This is the preaching of the gospel went forward, opposition turned to persecution. In chapter 2, the first disciples, they're ridiculed, right? These people are all drunk. Chapter 4, after Peter's sermon at Solomon's portico, um, the people, the priests, the temple guards, and the Sadducees were told, turned physical and came upon them. That means beating them. Laid their hands on them and put them in prison. Chapter 5, the apostles are arrested and flogged. That's the terrible 39 lashes, right? 40 less 1. No one wants to go through that. And they count themselves worthy. In chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death for preaching the word. And In chapter 8, verse 1, we read, uh, Saul was, was ravaging and dragging people off. It says in uh, 8.1, And Saul approved of his execution, talking about Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But don't forget reading the next verse. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You see, it's the persecution that drives these new Christians out of Jerusalem into towns and villages of Judea and Samaria, taking the truth of the gospel with them. So we see the progression, don't we? Ridiculing, beating, imprisoning, flogging, murdering, and then this widespread persecution going on. So there's certainly persecution that's taking place, but there's also persecution specifically for Saul. And although he must have been somewhat prepared having time to think through what his ministry was going to be based on the commission that he was given by Christ. So he must have been prepared for the suffering that he was going to endure. But as he goes back to Damascus, it's a rude awakening because it happens fast. It's a dose of ministry reality. First of all, uh, persecution from the Jews in Damascus. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. And if if we're right in thinking that he goes to Arabia and he comes back, this is the very next thing that we find. (laughs) The Jews are plotting to kill him. That's a good start, isn't it? That kind of wakes you up. That sobers you up. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Mighty Saul. Powerful Saul. Gifted Saul, commissioned Saul, goes back to Jerusalem and persecution happens immediately. And he has the hum- humiliation of having to, be, having to be rescued by escaping Damascus out of a kind of a hole in the wall being lowered down in the basket. Sometimes, friends, God's people are called to stand up to persecution and at other times they are called to flee. And both are right. And every child of God has to pray before God and seek to determine what is right in that moment for them. Right? Persecution from the Jews in Damascus, then we have persecution from the Jews in Jerusalem. And what do we find there? Verse 29, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When Saul was in Jerusalem, then he joins in with the disciples. He finally is accepted, and he begins ministry there in Jerusalem, and he's starting to talk now with the Hellenists. Again, these are the same Jews that had turned against Stephen over three years prior and stoned Stephen. And friends, the persecutor now becomes the preacher. The hunter becomes the hunted. Both in Damascus and in Jerusalem, 
Saul is experiencing persecution. Now, friends, hear this. This is persecution because of gospel witness. This is not persecution because of his bad behavior. This is not persecution because he's giving angry and hateful speech. This is not persecution because of a political persuasion, right? Don't equate those things. If you suffer persecution for those things, call it for what it is. But it's not gospel persecution. What he's experiencing here is persecution because he was going about proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is persecution, friends. Preaching, preparation, persecution. Here's the last one. People. Again, just just reflecting through Acts 1 through 9, we've met some of the most wonderful and devoted servants of the Lord. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I'm just going to highlight them. Of course, there's the apostle Peter, this mighty leader who obviously was, was, was struggling in the Gospels with Jesus and rejected what Jesus said he came to do and ultimately is being used by, by the Lord to be the leader of now this new church movement. And of course, his associate John, who's there with him at the beginning, Then the apostles in general who've been faithfully proclaiming Christ and counting it a privilege to be considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. We have this this beautiful section where there's this young congregation who are one heart and soul and shared what they had as people were in need. We have the seven deacons, men of good reputation, were filled with the spirit and wisdom who, who were assigned to care for the widow. We have Stephen, what an incredible character he, he, he is. and He faithfully proclaimed the gospel and suffered for it and became the first Christian martyr. And then Philip, of course, we know him as Philip the Evangelist, whose passion for preaching was so contagious as he took the gospel to the city of Samaria. Then there's this Ethiopian. <laughs> what a wonderful, uh, what, just a little cameo in the story here, this first African convert. Then Ananias, I mean, who's woken up or, you know, has this vision with this angel saying, you know, Saul's coming to town and I want you to take care of him. What do you mean, Saul? And he trusts the Lord and he goes and he's a minister to Saul. And then we find the disciples of Saul who help him escape from Damascus. And then the disciples in Jerusalem who are there helping Saul again escape the persecution from Jerusalem, sending him to Caesarea and ultimately to Tarsus. But friends, there is one man who stands out in our text, a man we would love to have as part of our congregation, a man we would love to call friend. His name is Barnabas, son of encouragement. I mean, just just remember what happens here. Not only is he generous with his resources, we found that out in Acts chapter 4, but he is also gracious with people. And in our text, he become, he comes to the aid of Saul. Let's just again read this verse 26 and following. And when he had come to Jerusalem, that's Saul, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. Well, yeah, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him how, how, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Let's just kind of walk through this a little bit here. Understandably, when Saul shows up in Jerusalem and tries to associate himself with the believers there, It's been over three years. But they still are reminded of the fact, this is Saul. This is the one who went around persecuting Christians. And they're extremely fearful. They must have remembered the the wolf of Jerusalem, the, the, the demon of Damascus, to the point that they don't believe that Saul is a genuine believer at all. They fear that he is just working undercover, so to speak, to penetrate the Christian community to cause more ravaging, more imprisonment, and death. It's understandable. This is not an irrational response. In fact, it's very rational. The mastermind of Christian persecution now claims to be a follower of Christ. Hey, we're not pushovers here. We're not that gullible, and we are not convinced. 
And then Barnabas speaks. I love what Luke says here. <laughs> he takes Saul to the disciples. I mean, here's a guy who's like, look, we're going to solve this once for all, and I'm standing with you, and I'm standing by you, and I'll do all the talking. You can just sit there, and you can listen, but I'm going to tell them what's going on. And what do we find? He, he, he brings Saul to the disciples, and he says, let me tell you about this guy. Let me tell you about his conversion, how he's on the road to Damascus, and he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, and he heard from him, and how he's been converted. And now, having been converted, he's in Damascus, and he has been preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas smooths over the fear and presents Saul as a legitimate follower of Christ. Barnabas, the mediator, the peacemaker, the encourager, the diplomat, the reconciler. And this was the beginning of a lifelong friendship with Saul. And the result, according to Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, is that Saul got to know James, the Lord's brother, and spent two weeks with Peter um, in his home. Can you imagine the kind of conversations they had? What an incredible encounter, but all this because of a man like Barnabas. As a result, he gave Saul freedom to relaunch his ministry. But again, it wasn't smooth sailing, was it? The Hellenist Jews sought to kill him, and the disciples in Jerusalem helped Saul go to safety of Caesarea and then to Tarsus. And the reality is, friends, we don't hear from Saul again for about eight years. Not until Barnabas comes to Tarsus to ask for Saul's help with the work in Antioch, in Acts chapter 11. Again, this just tells you we don't necessarily capture the time frame of what's happening in the book of Acts. But there's this wonderful relationship that begins with Barnabas, and he, he now wants to go and find Saul to, to help him now with this ministry that's happening in Antioch. And friends, one of the marks of church growth is faithful people living together in unity or in the unity of the gospel, ministering to one another for the sake of ongoing gospel ministry and for the glory of God. So when we think about all the one another's that are talked about in the New Testament, praying for one another, encouraging one another, serving one another, helping one another. Friends, church growth is not measured by how many people are in attendance. Church growth is measured by how knit together the people are as a community. The size of our church is irrelevant, friends, except for administration reasons. <laughs> we need to make sure we have the right measurement of elders and workers to make sure that we're shepherding the flock. But the effectiveness and the health of the church is measured by how knit together the people are to care for one another, to love one another, to help gospel ministry continue to go forward. Friends, these are four essentials. And so as we close here, I want to draw them to a more personal level for us here today. Okay. Number one, and I'm pleading with you here, value the preaching and teaching of God's word as essential for your health and growth. Now, I'm saying this not because I'm a pastor. If I was sitting where you were and I was not in pastoral ministry, I would be wanting to say the same thing. Listen to what God is saying through the preach word as you gather together on a Sunday morning in another kind of context, Bible study, place yourself under that preach word. Make it a point to sit under it. See it as God's word to your soul through his divinely ordained mechanism. Hear this, friends. Preaching is not man's idea. It's foolishness. It's God's idea. So learn how to listen well. Take notes. Ask questions. Seek to personally apply the preach word to your life. Don't rely on the pastor to do it all. I can't apply the text of God's word to every specific situation you're going in. So learn how to do it yourself. And I'm not kind of dumping that responsibility on you. There are some unique situations where you're like, you know, I need to seek help. And we're certainly here to help you with some personal application. But we've got to learn then to, to get the sense of the implications of what are being said and say, all right, how does that flesh out then for me? So value the preaching and the teaching of God's word as essential for your health and growth. 
Secondly, closely tied to it, eagerly pursue your ongoing growth toward maturity in Christ. Eagerly pursue. That means pursue the spiritual disciplines, not as boxes that you're checking off, as as ways to be interacting in in a fresh way with the glories of God being revealed to you and, 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 and allowing them to have their way in your heart and in your life. Exercising yourself toward godliness, Scripture says. Learning to put off the old man, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on Christ's righteousness. I love Paul's instructions to Timothy about, about his growth, in particular as a pastor. He says, let them see your progress. Not perfection, But progress, are you making progress in your own Christian maturity? And friends, this is the passion of our elders for you. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29. This is our church's verse, by the way, if you didn't know that. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me, Paul says. We say, this is what we want to do for your own growth and maturity. Third, expect that your serious commitment to Christ will bring out opposition. You might not have to be let down the walls of a city in a basket. But if you're committed to Christ, it will naturally rub up against opposition. Remember what Jesus told his disciples. John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not, uh, you are not of the world, because I chose you, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And I, and I do not mean to say here that being obnoxious and rude is legitimate. What I'm saying here is when, if you're walking in a godly way with the Lord, yes, people are going to see that, and there's going to be a positive side to that, but you're also going to run into people that do not like it. It's just natural. It's all part of the package here. The people that were persecuting, you know, the apostles in in the book of Acts here are, are, are persecuting for a reason. They do not like the message of the gospel. It confronted them. It challenged them. It rebuked them. And much of the time what happens with us is as we're living for the Lord, our lives, our, our beliefs, the things that we, we hold dearly to are an offense to those around us. Fourth, love and value what it means to be in community with the body of Christ. Don't you love the people of God? Oh, we're a, we're a bunch of crazy people. We're weird. We have strange personalities. Some of us have strange hobbies and likes. But we are the body of Christ. Love and value what it means to be in community with the body of Christ. So show your commitment to community by joining the membership of the church. Secondly, pursue the building of relationships together. I mean, actively seek people out, want to get to know people that you don't know. Who is that person? I don't know what their name is. I'm going to find out. I'm going to get to know that person. Why? Because we're in community together. We're the church. And finally, exercise hospitality. See your home as a platform for church ministry. And the conversations that can come as a result of just sharing a meal together and spending time together or going on a walk together or meeting for coffee together, what it might be, just interacting in that way. Friends, community is absolutely necessary. But all of this flows out of God's program of the proclamation of the Word of God. So friends, if we want to experience church growth, we're not talking about numbers, we're talking about depth. These are the things that we find are essential. You say, well, is is persecution essential? Well, it's essential in the sense that it's going to happen. You're going to run into it. Church growth, friends. A more, I might want to say, biblical pattern for church growth. Preaching, 
preparation, persecution, and people. Lord, help us today. We have seen, Lord, just in uh, these nine chapters, Lord, how mightily you have been at work in this early church. How you've brought incredible, miraculous growth in such a way, Lord, that is um, beyond human comprehension as far as methodology is concerned. To think that the, the, the word preached would result in the kind of conversions. And Lord, not just kind of conversions that, that, that just affirm some kind of doctrinal statement, but conversions that, that identify themselves with a whole new group of people and are seeking to live in community with those whole new set of people who are experiencing the persecution or the, um, the oppression from others when they are identified with this group of people. Lord, I just, I just pray that we would, we would see, Lord, the beauty and the wonder of how you are at work in our lives through the ministry of your word. And Lord, to keep that central, to love it, to value it, to pursue it, to grow in our own maturity toward Christ-likeness, to be working hard on that level. And Lord, to anticipate the suffering that comes simply because we're Christ followers. But Lord, the joy of having brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to fellowship with, to be able to laugh with, to be able to seek counsel from, to have prayer from. Lord, we, we value all these things, Lord, because you are a great God and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in your church and how you continue to grow your church. Lord, may, may we not be caught up with an American um, church growth mentality. And may we be caught up with a gospel-centered, biblical kind of perspective of what church growth looks like. And give us eyes to see, and Lord, wisdom, Lord, to accomplish your purposes for your glory in your way. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.